This double lecture from Teresa Wong and Ellen Fullman was recorded ahead of their long string instrument performance in 2017. Teresa Wong's lecture performance The Multiplicity of Roots explains her expanded approach to working with cello across experimental tunings, unusual harmonics, and drawing on influences from around the world and avant-garde arts. Ellen Fullman's lecture Constructing a Musical Phrase from the Ground Up shares the influences, ideas, and context that led up to the creation of the long string instrument and other works. This event was made in collaboration with the channel, as part of the Cirrus Composure and was recorded on the 25th of January 2017 at the channel. Hi everyone, thanks so much for uh, coming today. Um, I want to start by acknowledging that this event takes place on Wurundjeri land, which was never ceded, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and future. Uh, my name is Joel Stern. I'm uh, one of the co-directors of Liquid Architecture, uh, which is an organisation for artists working with sound. And uh, we're really pleased to be teaming up today with the channel. Uh, this is a great space. It's for music education and sharing and uh, it's part of the Arts Centre and this uh, program today is part of a series here at the channel called Composure. So we look forward to uh, being at more of those. And it's a great event today. We have uh, Teresa Wong and Ellen Fullman, two amazing artists who are in Australia for the first time um, and this is an opportunity to hear from both of those artists in a more intimate setting in advance of their concert, which is uh, this Friday. What we have today are two kind of artist presentation talks um, by Teresa and Alan. Teresa is going to go first. And Teresa's uh, talk is called The Multiplicity of Roots. And uh, it's going to be a lecture performance looking at the uh, her expanded approach to working with the cello uh, across experimental tunings, um, unusual harmonics and uh, drawing on influences from around the world and from avant-garde art. So I'm so excited. Please make uh, Teresa welcome and I'll hand it over. Thank you so much. Uh, it's really great to be in Australia for the first time and thank you to the substation, the channel and uh, Liquid Architecture for bringing us here. Um, so I want to talk about my work uh, as a cellist and a vocalist and a composer. And uh, what you see here is a picture of a piece of wood under the microscope. And uh, it's just, for me, kind of um, a way that I relate to working with my instrument and looking into you know, the material itself as deeply as I can. Um, so one question I ask myself is, how can I rediscover this instrument as wood and string and hair? Um, and even simply as a tree, going back to the basic of the material. Um, and I think about the word root is really interesting because it can be one's um, cultural roots. So looking at what am I doing with this classical Western instrument? and um, how can you go into the material like the root of a tree? And also the root is the fundamental of a pitch and harmony. So just many approaches to think about what kind of sounds can be generated. Um, so I'm gonna perform for you a piece called 
Night Watching. And this is a song I wrote um, just as I was starting to explore uh, more possibilities of the cello. So it's um, in a scordature, which means a detuning of the cello. So I've got the C string here, the G string, the D string, and the A string is tuned to a, a G. So it's tuned one whole step down.
So that's on a, um, a collection of solo songs that I've written. Um, maybe take this out. Um, on an album called Venice is a Fish. Uh, so I wanted to talk a little bit about a project of mine called The Unlearning. And um, these are a series of um, miniature songs that I wrote um, based on or inspired by Goya's Disasters of War etchings. Um, have some of you seen these etchings in real life? Yeah, they're quite, you know, quite disturbing and moving and also just very, very timely. Um, I began writing this in 2009 in the midst of the Iraq and Afghanistan war and I just feel like his work really just still resonates so strongly with um, what's going on today. <clears throat> um, the piece was written for, um, these are just some of the etchings. The piece was written for violinists named Carla Kilstedt and myself um, playing and singing. And um, in 2013, I commissioned two filmmakers, um, Daria Martin and uh, Mao Malona, who are based in London, to create a video projection to accompany the piece, because we wanted to actually have Goya's etchings really sort of a part of the performance. Um, and so what we did was we used not only the etchings, which I just showed some slides from, but um, we also looked at these ancient um, goddess figurines from the Neolithic era. And I learned about these and was really fascinated because there is um, this Lithuanian-American archeologist, Maria Gimbutas, who did extensive research through Europe and the Mediterranean. And she excavated just hundreds of sites and there's a catalog of you know, thousands of objects that are um, largely, according to her theory, pointing to these matriarchal societies that had no evidence of warfare. So it was kind of interesting to think about that, that thousand, you know, like 10,000 years ago, um, and even longer, that there could be possibly societies that were not warring, um, and, and to look at their art and what were they, what were these societies like? So we sort of created this mashup of using the goddess imagery and just very kind of slow moving projections, combining with Goya's um, etchings, which also kind of point to the same thing of, um, you know, the, the female figure in his etchings have kind of a particular role, um, and the use of the fantastic and the animal figurines to show something kind of magical or um, supernatural. So this is strange devotion in the back which is a kind of commentary on the religious fervor of the time. And Goya was, um, he made these during the Napoleonic War, which was French's, uh, France's invasion of Spain, but they actually weren't published until like 35 years after his death. Um, and you see this mother and child figurine on the left. Here's some more of the uh, imagery from these Neolithic cultures. So here are some sketches I did for costumes. And uh, what was interesting is when we performed this in 2013, my collaborator, Carla, was pregnant. So I thought it was very interesting to actually just emphasize that because you know, a lot of these figurines um, also 
represented uh, fertility and water and the life-giving force of the female um, force. And uh, you'll see a lot of like wave patterns and chevrons, which also allude to the reproductive system and um, kind of this, the mystery of, of life. Um, these are two figurines that are known as uh, the Lamenters. Here's a photo from the performance. So I wanted to just play um, an excerpt. This is from a show we did last year in San Francisco, and the etching here is Proud Monster. Oh, <laughs> 
So that's Proud Monster. Thank you. And there's actually 21 songs in this uh, project. So um, they're all, actually, I think that's the longest one. They're all quite short. <laughs> um, now I want to talk a little bit about um, my approach to working with the harmonics of the cello and how this connects with my collaboration with Ellen Fullman and the piece that we're performing on Friday. Uh, so I learned classical cello till the age of 18 and then I took a long break from music and studied design and then through that world I kind of got back into more experimental music. and. Um, what, what always kind of amazed me is, as I started to learn more about different kind of music, I hadn't really been exposed to different tunings and the idea of just intonation, which is a tuning system based on the natural harmonics of um, any given pitch. And so, you know, in the traditional training, you're kind of taught, like, here are some harmonics on your cello, and I can, I can demonstrate those in a second. Um, but not necessarily why they're there, and where else they are, because they're actually all over the cello. <laughs> so just for those who don't really um, have that much um, info on what, what this all is, if you imagine um, the, the, uh, the nut of the cello is, is this part right here, and then the bridge is right here. So I've just kind of looked, laid the cello on its side. So if you play any given string, which I'll play, we'll pretend that's an A, but it's not. Okay, so that's just the, the fundamental is the, the pitch that you get, the general low pitch that you hear. So if we pretended that was an A, so normally that would be this string, even though I've tuned it down to a G, so anyways. If you divide the string in half, which is exactly right here, so the length between here and here is the same, you've got this harmonic. Basically, it's just exciting this, wa this uh, wave. And so the harmonic, and if I press down on the string, it's the same note because it's also exciting that wave. So if I keep dividing the string in half, then I go to a third. See right here. Then you've got a third here and a third here. So you're exciting this wave now. But the interesting thing is now we've got two sets of pitches because not only do you have the, the frequency of this wave, but if I pressed it down here, I'm getting like this wave, right? So it actually, there's a different pitch here. here. If I press down, that press note and this harmonic note is the same, but if I press it there, well it's twice this one, so it's actually going to be an octave lower. Okay, so there's like two things going on here. There's the pressed notes and then the harmonic, or let's call them another term in music is flageolet, so when you don't really press down it's just like lightly tapping. So I started to draw this to like understand, okay, what's going on? Why, this repeats itself here, why is that? It's because you're dividing the string into equal parts. Okay, so the special blue note means when you press the pitch, it's the same as the flageolet note. 
And that's going to happen every time you're at the very last nodal point. So that actually that note should be blue. There's an error there. <laughs> okay, because that note's the same pressed. But you see the middle one, there's only one, so that's blue. So if you keep going, you divide the string into, I skipped the four because if you divide it in four, it's the same as two, but you just double it. Okay, so you're just getting an octave. Whenever you double frequency, you get an octave. So I went to five. So five here. Okay, so that's gonna be that highest pitch right here. Now this is an old version, so I didn't make them blue. Oh, they're red, okay. So that's that note up here, it's kind of a flat C sharp, even though I have my string tuned, so it's actually not, it's more like a B. <laughs> but um, so you can see how at every nodal point, you're gonna get that same high note as a flagellate. But when I press it, Okay, so the last one is the same. But all these are different, right? Okay, so again, we've got two sets of pitches here, press note and flagellate note, and they relate to each other, of course. But another thing that's interesting for those who have never heard of just intonation is these pitches are not in the equal-tempered scale. So equal-tempered is like when you look at a piano and every note is exactly the same distance to each other. The next note is a half a step to each other, okay? They're, they've been, through history, tempered. So they've been tweaked into this wonky, <laughs> what, what now I hear is wonky, right? As like the scale, which is exactly perfect. But if you look at these pitches, uh, what I've written here below the frequency is the sense deviation from um, an equal tempered pitch. Now there's a hundred cents in a half tone. So a, a half tone or semitone is just the distance like. So if you go up like a chromatic scale, those are half steps. Well, you divide that one little step into a hundred divisions, that's a cent. So like this C sharp is actually 14 cents flatter than what you would hear if you played it like that C-sharp on a piano. So what do they call microtones? Well, microtones can just be anything between the equal tempered. At least that's my understanding of it, yeah. So that's why it's micro, because it's just really in between all these pitches. Um, okay, so there's different sense deviations for all these pitches. So here we go, here's seven. And that's where you get this beautiful flat blues seven. <laughs> Seven. We hear five, six, seven. So. so there's the blue scale, but that flat seven is that comes from that note, um, which is flatter than what we're used to hearing it as. So I went on and mapped this, <laughs> a little obsessive, I admit, to the 13th division. Um, and actually, yeah, that's about the limit, 13 or 16, that you can actually hear it. Because on the cello, you can hear 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 
13. And then here it gets a little bit harder to hear. Like on a bass, because the strings are bigger and longer, they, they pop out easier. So what I was just playing was these flagellate notes from the five. Is that the five? Here. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. Okay, but looking at this map, I realized, oh, all of that occurs again here, you know, and right here, and again here. So it's just helped me to understand that. Oh, that sounds different. And again, that sounds different. Now, the reason is some of them are so close, they cancel each other out more. So even though all those nodal points are physically there, they don't all ring necessarily in the same way. So I use that also in our, in our collaboration, our composition as, as a way to compose and to create a certain sound. Um, so what's really interesting is, as I start to dig into like just tuning and like what is going on in this instrument and um, breaking out of equal tempered scales, Western music, um, Ellen had a book um, called, what was it called? Mathematics, acoustical, what was it? Yeah, I have it on the next slide, but I don't want to spoil it. So anyways, I was looking through this book and it talks about a lot of different um, world music and the tunings that they use because this kind of tuning is nothing new. I mean, it's been around for thousands of years and like ancient Chinese music has it. Um, Pythagoras is also well known to have sort of documented the way um, frequencies have to do with each other. So one instrument that I really love is the Gu Qin and this is a an, an instrument from, I mean, it's documented from even back to 3000 BC um, Chinese instrument, and it's seven strings. And the beautiful thing is, it's really all about the harmonics and the way that the hand plays the note, like how how the attack is. So when I was opening this book and looking through it, I was really quite excited when I found this chart because basically it's the same thing as what I'm exploring. You see these solid dots. And then the, the notes above it. So the dots are basically the nodal points of the instrument. And then there's two sets of tones, the stop tones on the bottom and the flagellate notes. And that whole system of music is actually the same thing. It's what note do you get when you press the string there and what note do you get when you play it as a harmonic. Um, so that was kind of a fun discovery. Uh, yeah, the book is Musical Mathematics by Chris Forster. Um, so I'll just end with the first page of our score. Um, so this is what we'll be performing. This is one of two pages. And basically the notation is written in fractions because that's how we're referring to these pitches as a specific integer relationship to a fundamental. And we've decided the fundamental to be um, A, the note A. But actually, instead of using 440A, we're using 432A. Um, and so if you see two over one, that's the octave, that's frequency is 
two times the fundamental, 16 over nine, so that's another relationship, and on and on and on. And the way I've notated my cello part, um, the strings are in blue, so just like traditional notation, this is one, two, three, four. And then 6.5 or 9.8, that just is a way for me to indicate if I divide the string into six parts, which division point am I in? I'm at the fifth, the fourth, the third, the second, or the first. And then the little um, open circle is the flagellate, and then the solid circle is pressing. So I've just kind of like made a little map for myself, like which string, which nodal point, and is it a flagellate or is it a pressed note? And so in each section, and Ellen can explain more about her notation, but basically the, the numbers below are uh, meters that you'll see on the floor. So that's an indication of where to walk and what notes to play and then the technique. So in each section, we've determined really quite specifically the harmonies that we're using, the relationships of our notes and the technique. But within that, um, we're, we're sort of improvising, you know, certain aspects like the timing and um, some of our gestures. Um, and sometimes I, I kind of go off of this and I just decide I'm gonna just try this other sound that I wanna hear right now. Um, and I'm also using um, Ableton Live to play back some loops live of certain pitches I've recorded, as well as record myself while I'm playing to then play back um, to create more of a texture of um, overlaid cello pitches. So that's all I have. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, we're just going to take a couple of minutes to switch things over on stage and uh, then Alan Fullman will uh, present. Thanks. It's so great to be here in Australia, in Melbourne. Uh, this started. Yeah, so, um, well, I'm just going to go all the way back uh, to before I was born. And this is the work of my father, uh, Victor Fullman, who painted uh, uh, in the style of, uh, was a regionalist style. This was painted in 1938 uh, when he was 19 years old. Uh, he did manage to uh, study in art school for a couple of years, but um, I don't know, things happened. The war interrupted his study, and uh, he started a family, and he just started to get into commercial work. But uh, he, these, these were, uh, I have a couple of paintings here. These uh, are paintings that I grew up with, and I always uh, felt 
um, like I wanted to go into those worlds. Um, and just growing up, up with my father, um, uh, he was creative in a lot of ways. There he is at, when he painted those. And uh, he also uh, designed stained glass windows. Uh, this is in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, and here is an uh, image of my parents with what is called the cartoon. Uh, the uh, stained glass windows um, had, there was like a, a template that the glass cutters used to, um, you know, uh, to go by. And my dad um, made those. They, uh, my parents visited many years later and, and the company unrolled those for them. And here is a uh, detail. Uh, but unfortunately, the froggy didn't make it into the final uh, window in the Catholic Church. Um, I grew up on a construction site. I'm very comfortable with uh, construction. That's me there in the little chair. And, uh, you know, throughout my entire life, my father was constantly knocking down walls and, you know, building extensions on the house. And so, uh, but it was really fun and exciting. Like, really gave me a strong sense of uh, space and form and sculpture. Um, there's my dad. He liked to to uh, take selfies uh, <laughs> before there was such a thing. He's sitting in front of his uh, studio space, is this? Yeah. and um, he built a, a room uh, outside of the house, um, a building, and uh, this is a picture that I made uh, of him working there. He did a lot of commercial work in there, and I looked outside from the house and saw him there many nights uh, working at his desk. Um, he did this kind of work, these uh, drawings for the newspaper. They're called um, um, renderings. And my father, uh, these were enormous you know, ink drawings at, in those days. And uh, he sometimes drew me in the window looking out, and then we'd go you know, get the newspaper and, and look with the magnifying glass. Um, this is the house I grew up in, and my father uh, cast that driveway. The driveway, original one, broke up, and, and rather than hiring a company to come in and, and uh, pour a new driveway, he broke it up and uh, cast these ovals individually. Like every night when he came home from work, he just cast another oval or two until he had filled out the whole thing. It was a really cool looking thing. Um, and then for Christmas one year, my father as a decoration decided to mow the word peace into the lawn. Um, he became interested uh, nearing his um, retirement years when he could afford to buy um, oriental rugs. He became interested in knowing more about them and he was so curious to know what it might be like uh, to make one that he started making his own. He um, bought uh, sweaters from um, a, a salvage you know, store uh, and unraveled them and cut the yarn into small segments and then used that to tie knots. Here's his, that's as far as he got though, on his rug. <laughs> but. Um, that sat, you know, for many years in his studio um, in that condition. Um, so, just to give you some background, 
uh, my father, in a way, like growing up with his eccentricity, it gave me permission to be eccentric because it's actually kind of fun. Um, and I, I created this in art school. Um, this is called the Metal Skirt Sound Sculpture. Um, uh, this uh, contact mic was on the, uh, I fabricated the skirt and it was the contact, I put a contact mic on it. Um, there are guitar strings from the front edges of the skirt and the back edges to the toes and heels of my platform shoes. So that when I stepped forward, the back string stretched out and produced a rising gliss. The front string squeezed in and produced a descending gliss. So you had both rising and descending, overlapping, as well as a, some metal crunching sounds. Um, here's a short video of me walking down the street. Uh, the piece uh, I was titled Street Walker because um, I walked the, uh, in the area where the prostitutes worked in Minneapolis. <laughs> Lastly, uh, this person, he said, uh, where are you from? And I said, planet Earth. Um, I was trying to maintain the fourth wall, but that was impossible. Um, at this time, um, so I was, um, let's see, I had met Pauline Oliveros. Uh, she was, she gave a lecture at the Walker Art Center there in Minneapolis. Um, she had performed in a festival called New Music America. Um, I really uh, loved this album, Accordion and Voice. I um, was very inspired by her work and just how she functioned, really. Just very inspiring person. Um, and so in those, uh, at that time, I, I just um, gathered materials that I found and I made constructions, these uh, litho sheets. I created a, what I called a thunder pedal that shook them all. There were, these are bowing strings in front of myself. And uh, on my head is a chime made of, wind chime made of uh, silverware. And I fished on some litho sheets that made a shimmering sound. You know, um, it's all very um, rickety and thrown together, but uh, I just did whatever I wanted to do. I had this big space, and um, there's the thunder pedal. Um, and I strung up a long string just to see what that might do and started bowing it. Um, and um, I had been inspired by Alvin Lussier's music on a long, thin wire. And so that gave me the idea to uh, work with a long string. Uh, his piece uh, works... Uh, um, just based on the acoustics of the room, it's self-activated. But um, I wanted to see what I might do uh, manually manipulating string. 
Um, and this led me to rubbing the strings. I accidentally brushed past one, and it produced this other kind of tone. I used these um, large mixing bowls with, filled with water with a contact pickup and uh, was able to modulate the sound um, of, that, of that bowl. I always loved pots and pans in the kitchen. Um, and here I am on the rooftop of my studio in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, uh, with this same configuration. Uh, and then uh, I met Arnold Dreiblatt. Um, and this is a picture from a year before I met him. You know, this was, he was uh, studying with Alvin Lussier at Wesleyan um, in graduate school. Uh, he created a, uh, an ensemble of instruments which he called the Orchestra of Excited Strings. And I was very um, um, excited about his music. Um, and he also uh, introduced me to Bob Balecki, who's an engineer uh, who's behind a lot of uh, sound artists' work, including Laurie Anderson um, and her tape bow violin. He just, um, just a wonderful, very creative engineer. And Arnold uh, arranged a meeting for myself with Bob, um, where Bob, I see, I didn't go into how in those earlier um, images of me rubbing strings, I, had, I was not able to tune that string. Um, uh, when you rub a string along the length, you're setting up what's called the longitudinal mode, and cranking up tension doesn't change the pitch at all. Um, also, increasing the gauge doesn't bring the pitch down as it would in a uh, transverse uh, instrument, which all other string instruments that are bowed or plucked are vibrating in the transverse mode. Um, so Bob explained to me, you know, technically what was going on with this and how I might tune it, which turned out to, well, he, he gave me this formula. The speed of the wave uh, divided by the length is going to um, give you the frequency. So if you invert that formula, frequency times string length will give you the speed right, um, of, the, of the wave. Um, and so that, in that way, I was able to calculate um, my, my tunings using a spreadsheet. And this is getting into the stuff that Teresa was talking about, about stopping strings and how, what, what just intonation these ratios mean, because three over two of the string length is, is two-thirds of the string length is going to be expressed as a three over two of the frequency. Um, you see that how the math works out. It's it's not hard math. <laughs> it's very easy math. Um, and uh, here, this image is um, just showing. Uh, this is uh, a photograph of um, in musical acoustics. It's a demonstration that's used just with like a piece of twine, and one end is shaking, and it's um, shaking at different speeds, which demonstrate these different modes of vibration of uh, how music string or any kind of wire um, will will divide itself up into these um, per, you know these small number subdivisions and all this is going on all at once when you say when you bow an open string you're hearing a composite sound of all of those harmonics to a varying degree um, so again that's just showing the tech of how to calculate those things. And here's a spreadsheet. I like colors. It tells me to, to you know, I just, oh, you know, I can, 
I can just like scan across to like find the number I'm looking for. But this is um, giving me the the lengths and meters of you know using bronze wire and stainless steel, the B and Z and SS and in various octaves of like all those ratios and the sense deviation. Um, so here, this is when I'd first uh, met with Bob and my first installation um, where I was able to tune and I, I tuned with hanging these little C-clamps to stop the wire um, uh, acting as a capo. Um, which um, I was really excited to discover that the beauty of that sound. It was, in a way, it felt like playing a theremin, and it was so responsive, and like I felt that it sounded kind of like a chamber ensemble, just a very rich sound. Um, so um, I, it was very, yeah, like kind of natural um, to, to play, um, but actually only when I was standing close, this was a resonator, one of my first ones that I made, it was just like an enormous like box that I made. Um, uh, but it, I was playing right near the bridge and um, the, it's a, a very beautiful kind of shimmering sound there, but I, I wanted to be able to can carry on and play um, as I moved into different places. And that, uh, I must admit, is, has been like a, a lifelong struggle for me, or kind of a lifelong um, progression to, um, to work on the, the um, technique, really. Um, so here's a little video showing that explains to you like what I went through uh, to uh, the kind of sounds that I didn't... first composed pieces that I made. Um, I'm performing there with Arnold. It's a duet piece. Uh, it's simply actually, we walked to play. It's The piece is actually simply a list of chords. We walked together out along the length, walked back in to the bridge, changed to another chord. It's a, it's a, the top line is is one part and then the bottom line is, is another part and we, we walked in unison. I, but I felt that, that there must be an, some way that I could um, compose with uh, more, um, more articulation. Um, but I couldn't, I, I couldn't think of, of how to keep track of people walking. Um, and what I came up with next is that someone would walk out while the other person walked in. And so this was, this was a slightly more interesting form. And then I saw this Guatemalan fabric and I thought that looked like music. It's um, this, this graphic geometric patterning. How could I apply that to notation? And here's the piece that I made where this is a four-part piece where I laid colored lines on the floor um, at um, uh, uh, 
like a small number interval relationships to each other. The um, the uh, this orange um, stripe was one third uh, the distance of the blue stripe. So then, therefore, when the person one person walked to the blue stripe, the one going to the orange had made three trips. And so this, in this way, I could compose a slightly more sophisticated um, sequence. Yes, um, it's hard to get a, get an idea of that, but um, uh, I was very interested in that spectrum of, of, of harmonics at the bridge, like, um, and then here's a duet um, where um, I had this uh, wonderful experience. I was, uh, this was at midnight in Seattle, downtown, uh, near the train yard, and in America, the freight trains, I, I heard it a little bit here, but the freight trains have very beautiful um, whistles. Um, and each train seems to have like a different tuning. And you'll, you can hear uh, trains coming from opposite directions where one conductor uh, plays, a, they have a signature that they actually play, you know, where they break out the horn into an arpeggiation. And, you know, they signal to each other, and, and it's just a wonderful, you know, you, hear, you can hear the Doppler effect and everything. So this, um, this happened while we were recording, and in the recording was this wonderful complexity of this train sound, which w made my music so much more interesting. Um, and I, I, from that moment on, I wanted to find a way that I could compose more, in a more complex way, harmonically as well. Um, so at about this time, I met um, Alvin Lussier. He um, produced a show um, at Wesleyan for me. And unbeknownst to me, um, he talked about me in his lectures um, to his graduate students. Uh, it was, I was just like part of his curriculum. And so he actually uh, titled a chapter in a, uh, his book, Music 109, which uh, came out a couple of, in 2012, uh, the the book is a transcription of his lectures, and um, so uh, his work has been very uh, inspiring to me. Alvin works with, say, scientific concepts, but then he his pieces uh, have poetry. So he takes this uh, very like kind of dry concept and executes it in a uh, some uh, something based on that in a very poetic way. Um, and then I just wanted to show here, I developed a collaboration with, with Pauline. Uh, I had a, just a personal friendship with her ever, ever along uh, all of the years that I knew her. Uh, she was a mentor, and I touched base with her, you know, here and there uh, over the years. And, and finally... Um, as my instrument developed, um, I, I had hoped to collaborate with her. 
And finally, when it worked out in um, 1993, and she sent me this postcard, you know, kind of an, an invitation. I had kind of a proposal to work together, and we received funding, and we we produced uh, two pieces. Hers was Epigraphs in the Time of AIDS. My piece was titled Texas Travel Texture. And we released an album called Suspended Music uh, in 1995. This, this is some more um, graphic material relating to what Teresa showed you, but this is my instrument, kind of a, like an overview of my instrument. Um, and these spikes are showing harmonics, locations, and the, the numbers with the circles are actually metric locations along the floor. And I'm here, here I'm showing playing a chord of the overtone series 13579 and where those harmonics might overlap on different strings uh, playing a chord. And in those places where they overlap, it's, it's even a more um, pronounced effect. And here is, uh, I actually made some pieces of elastic where I marked them off and, and strung out elastic under the, the string itself, um, which then showed me these nodal point locations. As I walk and play the string, I could also hear and locate with these colored markings the harmonics. The thing that happens is that some, like quite a lot of the strings, are the same length, the shorter ones, okay? And then I may, like some of the strings, I've been able to tune down. And the only way that I can tune down is by doubling the length. So, um, yeah. Uh, so, putting strings in a lower octave, you can also hear those, the octave of those harmonics. You see, because it's all like, it's all in a grid, a mathematical kind of grid, you know. Um, so, um, eh, it's intuitive, you know. So if I have a lot of time, I mark things out and I actually score uh, exactly where to, uh, I, where to articulate certain things. Um, um, but... I'm working in, in this piece in particular um, kind of intuitively. Um, this is a, a spectrogram showing uh, a cello playing the same frequency as my instrument, okay? Both playing A220, which is the high A uh, string on a cello. Uh, the cello is blue, the long string instrument is yellow. You see the uh, Starting off there at the fundamental, the, there's overlap with um, harmonics. And as, as you move up through the frequency range, the long string instrument continues to spike up, whereas the cello pretty much goes into the noise floor, of, which is the, the noise of the, the bow. Um, and, and, um, but the, uh, the long string instrument has harmonic spikes all the way up, even spikes all the way up to... 40k. So I must uh, surmise that all of those harmonics have some sort of effect on the, on the sound, which uh, perhaps uh, difference tones, uh, they affect um, you know, what, what we hear down in the 
range of hearing, which is supposed to be 20K. Um, here's a score uh, that I wanted to show you, which is very the most detailed one, where um, I'm using these numbers on the floor to um, mark my uh, locations and kind of a choreography, and then I have um, um, gestural indication with these um, icons, um, graphic icons, and this was a piece that where I performed it as a recording in my studio so that all these links remain the same of the, of the string tunings and so I was able to achieve and repeat certain effects that I was looking for. Um, here is um, a video clip. I, I have spy cams on my wrists and in order to, I wanted to share the small articulations that I and the corresponding sound. In the interest of time, I'm going to move forward. Um, this just uh, is showing a, a process of uh, uh, kind of product design, um, where I started with the C-clamp off the shelf, and then it took a year going through these different, um, I was working with product designers, um, these, these different prototypes to arrive at the one on the end, which is what I, what I uh, ended up putting into production. This is the, this, the capo, the, the clamp that tunes. I changed from steel to bronze, and the bronze affected the, the timbre. Um, and this is, has a, like a more streamlined um, form. The lever, um, actually, the rotating lever tunes. Um, this is a... Uh, a, um, I just wanted to demonstrate a little bit of uh, my box bow, uh, which is a, a type of tech, a technique of playing my strings in a rhythmic manner that I'm not going to use for the, the piece here. Um, but uh, I just wanted to share it with you. Um, let's see if I can get this going. Okay. And I'm playing there that, that pattern. And I came up with these graphics to um, uh, to uh, indicate different ways of moving that tool. Um, here is a piece that I uh, performed using that technique, um, and uh, also it's a this is like a uh, has a this is a video uh that i made uh using slides and um text in order to explain things that are going on um
You can conclude there. Thank you. This recording was produced by Marish Woodfagar for Liquid Architecture on the land of the Boon and Voi Warung people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this land and recognize that sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Liquid Architecture is an Australian organization for artists working with sound and listening. To learn more head to liquidarchitecture.org.au.